Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. The stories behind inventions. Episode three: Bells, no bells, more bells, and prizes. Last time, I looked at the remarkable achievement of Johannes Gutenberg in developing movable type printing. We can't overestimate that technology's fundamental seismic existential effect on our world, but we will leave it there for the moment. For over 400 years, it will remain the unchallenged medium for the transmission, reception, and exchange of information—information information stored in the form of writing and graphic illustration. This podcast today is going to whiz back and forth across the world and the continental United States, and try to establish the terms by which Gutenberg's mechanical means of communication were complemented and enhanced. By electrical means of information transmission, we really will be zipping backwards and forwards, and it may seem dizzying, but there is a kind of method in the apparent random madness of the stories I'm going to try and tell today. They involve amber, cables, prizes, Scotsman, magnets, and more Scotsman. But firstly, prizes. Our age is used to prizes. I ought, but fail, to blush when I think of the number of award ceremonies I alone have hosted in my time. The grander ones might be televised, but it's an open secret in my business that there is a very handy living to be made, emceeing less publicly known events. The telemarketing awards, the annual estate agent of the year, the small appliance retailer, the local newspaper, the app, the startup, and the gadget of the year. There is even an awards evening held to honour the best award ceremony of the year, as Americans like to say, "I shit you not." Nominations are invited for best venue, best design, best script, best acceptance speech, and of course, best host. Imagine hosting the award ceremony, award ceremony, being nominated for best host and not winning—the shame! So hard to go on with the rest of the evening. We all know of the Oscars, the Golden Globes, the Emmys, and the Baftas in the film and television world. Not to mention the Palm d'Or at Cannes and the various silver and golden bears, lions, and space needles given out at Berlin, Venice, Seattle, and other festivals of film. Grammys and Brits for music,、uh, the Booker Prize for novels, numerous prizes for architecture, design, poetry, pottery, cooking, knitting, and still being alive at ninety. Prizes for being Woman of the Year, Sports Personality of the Year, and Rear of the Year. I was the last ever British pipe smoker of the year. I'm proud to report, and I also beat off Ian McKellen and Rupert Everett for Gay of the Year. So when I say beat off, I anyway, 
The grandest of them all are, of course, the Nobel Prizes, offered for physics, chemistry, medicine, economics, literature and peace. There being none for mathematics, the real palms in that dizzy realm are the Fields Medal and the Arbel Prize. A prize will not just reward, it will incentivize. That is the usual claim and excuse for the attendant la-di-da, razzmatazz and folderol. The Nobel Prizes are perhaps unique in being originally instituted in order to apologise and make amends. Alfred Nobel, as is well known, made a great deal of money from his industrial holdings, most notable of which was the Bofors Iron and Armaments Company, which produced cannon and general artillery, and for his 355 patents, the best known of which was for the invention of dynamite, the explosive that empowered the mineral excavation and quarrying industry, not to mention the train-robbing and safe-cracking industries too. Nobel, like Mark Twain, was one of those unfortunates, or perhaps fortunates, who woke up one morning to discover that a newspaper had printed his obituary. Twain wrote an immortally pert letter to the papers to inform them that reports of his death had been greatly exaggerated. Nobel was horrified to read that he was going to go down in history, if the obituary was anything to go by, as a dealer of death on an industrial scale, a man who profited from the sale of weapons to the detriment of humanity. For the sake of his memory, and rarely can an individual have ever managed his post-mortem posterity so successfully, he left 94% of his gigantic fortune to the establishment of those Nobel Prizes, for which his name is now mostly remembered. His companies live on and trade to this day, but his enormous bequest is overseen by Swedish and Norwegian Nobel Foundations, Norway supervising the Peace Prize, Sweden the others. The money has been invested well enough to keep the prize fund prosperous. A Nobel Prize is as profitable to the lucky laureate in material goods as it is in everlasting reputation. Along with the medal comes a cash prize worth well over a million dollars these days. A fascinating history of the last hundred years or so of human development could easily be told by tracing the story of the Nobel laureates, a story which began with the 1901 awards, which saw Wilhelm Röntgen take the physics prize for his discovery of X-rays by way of prizes for Albert Einstein, Rudyard Kipling, the Curies, Winston Churchill, literature in his case, not peace, and Aung San Suu Kyi. Oops. Incidentally, to unite the two best-known prizes in the world, can you name anyone who has ever won both an Oscar and a Nobel Prize? Answers at the end of this broadcast. I only mention these famous awards because I want us to look at an award that isn't famous, but perhaps ought to be. It's older than any of them. In fact, it was founded exactly a hundred years before the first Nobel Prizes were distributed, and by a source many would regard as far more responsible for death and destruction than poor dear Alfred Nobel. Yet the reach of this prize is still felt today. I'm talking of the Volta Prize, instituted by no less a giant of human history than Napoleon Bonaparte, general, statesman, first consul and emperor of France. 
Le Prix Volta, was established to honour Alessandro Volta, the man whose name lives on in the SI unit of electrical potential, the Volt, and its cognate words voltage and voltaic. Say what you like about the Emperor, nasty temper, underestimation of Russians and of the Duke of Wellington, shortness of stature issues, chronic constipation and a classic Napoleon complex, but Boney was certainly a true child of the Enlightenment. He kick-started the serious study of Egyptology, he systematised scientific measurement with metrification and other rationalisations, and for much of Europe he organised jurisdictions of property, marriage, business and the criminal law into a code which is still in use today. As early as 1795, when still a young man working for the Revolutionary Bureau of Topography on behalf of the Committee of Public Safety, he helped divide Paris into arrondissements and Greater France into the regions, mayoralties, prefectures and provinces by which it is still governed to this day. There was much more to him, obviously, than his whiff of grapeshot, ma chère Joséphine, soldiers marching on their stomachs, brandy, gold coins and the grande armée. Like many keen and inquiring minds of his time, he had been astonished, bemused and intrigued by a newly harnessed force that was being experimented on all over Europe. What was this force? Well, without it, you wouldn't be able to hear my words, read them, record them, or share them precisely. It is everywhere, all around us. It binds us, Luke. To find out more, let's go from green to amber. You probably remember that Michael Crichton, in his novel and subsequent film Jurassic Park, had the wonderful idea that perhaps one day DNA trapped in amber could be used to help repopulate the world with dinosaurs. He reasoned thus, the sticky gunk, the resin that weeps from many species of tree, often traps flies and other insects as it trickles down the bark. Over time, this goo fossilises into amber, which humans have long valued as an ornamental gemstone for earrings, necklaces and brooches. But suppose, just suppose, said Crichton, we found a mosquito trapped in amber, and suppose further that the mosquito had, millions of years ago, bitten a dinosaur and sucked its blood before it was trapped in the resin. Why then? The saurian blood, DNA packages and all, would be there in the amber, waiting to be awoken, activated and cloned into a living beast. And so a movie franchise was born. Well, the ancient Greeks valued amber too. They had a story about how it came about. Phaeton, the son of the Greek god of the sun Helios, asked his father if he could ride the sun chariot across the sky. He mismanaged it terribly, burning the earth by driving too near and creating deserts, swooping too high and freezing the poles. In the end, Zeus had to down him with a thunderbolt. His sisters mourned him so deeply they were turned into poplar trees, and the tears they wept were called amber by the Greeks. And they noticed that this resin had an interesting property. An amber bead polished up to gemstone quality, when rubbed, would attract particles of dust, down, pollen, hair, feathers and threads. It was similar to the attraction they had noticed in the stones from the Greek region of Magnesia, which they called magnetite. 
The magnetic rocks or lodestones attracted iron, but the rubbed amber beads attracted any kind of particle light enough. It was a less strong pull than that of the magnetite, but it was more general and it was very peculiar. Now, the Greek word for amber happens to be electron, so they called this strange property of attraction amberism, or electrismos. The name stuck, and across Europe over the centuries, the properties of this mysterious force, whether involving amber or not, were referred to as amberish, or electric, and the force itself amberiness, or electricity. We'll meet amber again when we consider sperm and the technological leap that saved a certain species of whale from being hunted to extinction. But for now, let's look at that ambery force and its peculiar properties. Thales of Miletus, a, a pre-Socratic philosopher and inquirer into all sorts of curious natural phenomena, one of the 6th century seven sages of Greece, as they were called, posited that perhaps rubbing amber made it magnetic in just the same way that a lodestone or piece of magnetite was magnetic. But he seemed to have been aware that this theory couldn't be quite right, since the materials attracted were so different. For a couple of thousand years, it was assumed by all thinkers and observers, therefore, that the attractions achieved by magnetism on the one hand and amberiness or electricity on the other must be of a different order, which seems reasonable. Action at a distance is perhaps the most mysterious and exciting phenomenon a human being can consider, either in reality or figuratively. In reality, think of the action at a distance those stones of magnetite give us. In fact, the region of Greece, where they were first described being called magnesia, gave us, aside from the words magnet, magnetite and magnetic, the element magnesium, and through a spelling mistake, the element manganese too, as it happens. And, and when I say action at a distance, in reality, I mean that, as we all know, a piece of metal or a pile of iron filings can be moved by a magnet without the magnet touching it. It can be at a distance from the thing it is moving. In the case of the magnetic North Pole moving a compass needle, that distance can be really quite considerable, thousands of miles. In our normal human world, we can look at a messy bedroom as long as we like, or a coin that's rolled under the sofa. Nothing we can do with our minds will allow it to move unless we are in contact, touching, not at a distance at all. It's a damnable nuisance to be so dependent on these calories for physical hefting. Perhaps that's why most fantasy fiction, like much real science, is obsessed with action at a distance, in the form of superpowers like telekinesis. Mary Poppins can click her fingers and the bedroom is tidy. Superman can lift objects with his thoughts. Hermione Granger, Gandalf, Merlin, Carrie, Wonder Woman, and in subtler ways, mesmerists, thought controllers and hypnotists are all masters of action at a distance. But you and I are not. Unless we include information and its communication, of course, with words and language now widely reproducible and disseminable. Is that even a word? Well, it is now. Thanks to Gutenberg and his press, 
action at distance in terms of persuasion, information, disinformation, propaganda, rhetoric and psychological coercion have been made possible in extraordinary ways. Acting on a truth or a lie told remotely at a distance by a page of text or a tweet can save a life or cause a death or thousands of lives and millions of deaths. In many ways, the story of mankind's harnessing of calorific power from outside their own chain of food ingestion and metabolic burning is a twin-track rise. We utilised forces like the magnet and amberiness in the physical world, but they gave us the power to enable action at a distance with the transmission of ideas and information. Newton saw the action at a distance exerted by the force of gravity, of course. Electricity, magnetism, gravity, and the force that binds non-touching subatomic particles, the nuclear force. These forces of action at a distance are the primary colours of physics. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and really must stick to the proper order of things, or we'll get bogged down. Where are we? Uh, Napoleon, instituting the Volta Prize. So who was Alessandro Volta? Well, he was born of a grand family in Como, Italy, where in his 20s he was appointed Professor of Physics at the Royal School. At the age of 30, he improved on an intriguing device which he called the Electrophorus. This was essentially a, a contraption to generate and hold an electrostatic charge, exactly the kind of charge that the Greeks had produced by rubbing amber against kittens or cloths. The electrophorus used the same principle, which goes under the technical name the triboelectric effect, or what we would call the rubbing or friction that creates static electricity. You pull a sweater over your hair and it sparks, visibly in the dark. Your cat's fur crackles when you stroke it. A balloon rubbed on the wool of your pullover sticks to the wall. That's the triboelectric effect. It's worth asking ourselves now... What is the difference between static electricity and current or dynamic electricity? Now, do be patient if this is obvious to you or you've known it since you were at school. Somehow I never got the hang of electricity, despite of, or perhaps because of, the fact that my father was a physicist who specialised in electronics. So I'm going to try to tell you how I understand it. Bear in mind that there's electricity as Volta and his contemporaries and immediate successors understood it, and there's electricity as modern particle and quantum physics understands it. There are different ways of explaining a phenomenon we know when we see its effect. Certainly we can feel it, as anyone who's tongued a battery or been kicked by an electric fence or frayed cable can testify. But we know it too when a light goes on, a phone charges, a tumble dryer revolves or music plays. For most of us, the acquaintanceship stops there and we're content to read electricity as a, as a mystery, more or less akin to magic. Electricity is nowadays described as the phenomenon of moving or displacing electrons, those negatively charged elemental particles that whiz around the nucleus of every atom. Neither the Greeks nor Volta knew there were such particles, of course. They were called electrons precisely because of their central role in understanding electricity itself. Whether George Stoney, the Irish physicist who gave the particle that name as the fundamental unit quantity of electricity, was thinking of the Greeks and amber, or just back-forming the word without being aware of amber's role, is not really important. Now, static 
electricity describes the charges that build up or accumulate on the surfaces of materials when electricity is, as it were, at rest or static. While they're held there, they're said to be insulated in the material. The atoms of some substances easily lose electrons, while some more easily gain them. When a material loses electrons, it acquires a positive charge. When it attracts surplus electrons, it acquires a negative charge. Rub two such different types of material together, and the resultant separation of negative and positive creates the potential for static electricity. Another way of putting it is to say that the movement of negative charges from one material to another induces static electricity. The potential, or voltage, can be enormous, thousands or indeed millions of volts. Aside from the harmless balloons and crackling kitten fur we've mentioned, the most obvious and literally striking example of this kind of electricity is lightning. Current or dynamic electricity occurs when electrons are drawn along in a stream through a material. The Latin for drawn along is conducted, so the material is said to conduct electricity. Static electricity is accumulated in the material that insulates it. Current electricity is conducted through it in what is often called a flow. The metaphor of flow and current taken from our older understanding of water courses, may not describe the ultimate truth of what is happening at a subatomic or quantum level when you turn on a light switch, but it works well enough as a model. At least, that's my understanding of it. The difference between the two expressions of electricity that most interest us is that the static form cannot be directed to travel in a useful way to harness any work that it can do in hauling electrons about, and it's also hard, if not impossible, to store. Even in Volta's electrophorus, the charge soon decayed, the electrons quickly found their natural ways home, and the difference, and therefore potential, faded. With current electricity, however, directing its travel through conductors is simple, since travelling through conductors is precisely what it does, and storage, known as capacitance, also turns out to be a soluble problem. If one material conducts better than another, it means the flow of a current can be modified by the imposition of insulating or resisting objects along its predetermined fixed course, which is usually referred to as a circuit. Circuits can treat the electrons like marbles on a ramp, directing them, slowing them, boosting them, or like water in a watercourse, damming and sluicing, depending on how you like to picture it. Well, you probably knew all that, and I sort of vaguely did but didn't myself, but it's worth looking at because electricity powers our world, and the shock of its taming by Volta and his successors caused the leaps that form the basis of these podcasts. Even technologies that seem not to be electrical depend on it. The internal combustion engine on which motor cars have depended until recently would be all but useless without electricity. An engine is started and maintained in its course by electrical sparks. Its dynamos generate electricity as it burns fuel, and that electricity powers the lights, transmission, engine governance, braking and instrumentation, without which a motor car could barely function. How would skyscrapers work without electric elevators? How could air travel be a reality without electrically powered radio signals for communication and navigation. A truly unplugged world 
is hard to imagine. It's one thing to go off Facebook and Twitter for a week, but to go on a zero-volt diet, truly off the grid? Nicht unmöglich, aber etwas unwahrscheinlich, as they say in Germany. Not impossible, but a tad unlikely. If the Greeks and other Mediterranean cultures first rubbed the lamp, it was Alessandro Volta who released the genie. Not content with the short storage of charge in the insulating plates of his Electrophorus, he also wanted to settle an argument with his older friend, rival and fellow Italian, Luigi Galvani. Galvani had conducted, literally conducted as it turned out, a famous experiment in which he made the legs of a dead frog twitch. It was said that he was slowly skinning a frog at a table where he had just been conducting experiments with static electricity by rubbing the frog's skin, whatever turns you on. His assistant touched an exposed nerve on the frog with a metal scalpel that had picked up a charge. At that moment, they saw sparks, and the dead frog's leg kicked as if alive. This created a, a great stir, and many, Galvani included, rushed into a theory called animal electricity, a belief that living creatures have an animating electrical fluid of some kind in them. It was Volta, an early subscriber to the theory, who named it after Galvani Galvanism, Galvanic and galvanizing became popular words to describe almost anything electrical, from being galvanized with shock to galvanized steel, which has been dipped in zinc. Volta observed that the zinc and iron have an electrical potential difference between them, creating what is known as a corrosion cell. It was the animal electricity theory that gave Victor Frankenstein the technique for galvanizing his monster into twitching life in Mary Shelley's novel. But Volta began to doubt Galvani's idea that animals' muscles produced, generated electricity. He was fascinated, however, by his own observation that the best way to make a dead frog's leg twitch was to use two metals with the frog's leg in between. In 1794, he showed that when two metals and brine-soaked cloth or cardboard instead of a frog's leg are arranged in a circuit, they produce an electric current. Six years later, in 1800, he heaped up in a vertical pile several pairs of alternating copper and zinc discs separated by cloth or cardboard soaked in brine to increase the conductivity. When the top and bottom contacts were connected by a wire... An electric current flowed through the pile and the connecting wire. We would call the metal discs today electrodes, from the Greek odos, meaning a path or way, a medium for the electricity to travel in, as in exodus for way out. The positively charged electrode leaving no way out is an anode, and the negatively charged one offering the way down through the circuit is a cathode. And the brine, an electrolyte, the electricity loosened or freed in the liquid. And the wonderful thing about Volta's pile is that the electricity stayed there. Pile, or pile, as they pronounce it in France, is the French for battery to this day. For Volta's pile was just that, a battery. Volta soon discovered that sulfuric acid made an even better electrolyte than brine, although it was naturally trickier to handle. 
It was only a decade or so before the first dry piles were developed. One was built in Oxford in 1825, the famous Clarendon Dry Pile, or Oxford Electric Bell. A bell is powered by a dry pile which has run, and the bell has rung continuously since 1840 to today. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. I'll be back after a short interval. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Immediately after his first wet pile demonstration in 1800, Volta went to London to demonstrate it to the Royal Society and then to Paris to show it off to Napoleon, who gave him a gold medal and instituted the Volta Prize. But the Emperor didn't stop there. Volta had done the very thing that had been regarded by many modern Enlightenment thinkers as being a, a superstitious kind of impossibility, like the philosopher's stones and elixirs of youth promised by now debunked and discredited medieval alchemists. Volta had captured lightning in a bottle. And so intrigued and beguiled was the emperor by this achievement that a few years later he created Volta a count of the French Empire. Yes, he had caught lightning in a bottle. For the first time, not by rubbing, but by chemical reaction, he'd found a way to generate and store electricity. Well, bully for him, you might think. It's a long way from there to the light bulb and washing machine. Certainly it is. But the first use of electricity was as a tool for revealing new elemental features of matter. The charges produced by ever bigger and more efficient batteries allowed scientists to demonstrate electrolysis to isolate new elements. Monsieur Le Comte Volta himself discovered methane, inspired by reading Benjamin Franklin's observations on a flammable gas while Volta's enthusiastic British admirer Humphrey Davy used a gigantic voltaic pile of 2,000 pairs of metal discs to demonstrate carbon arc discharges to the Royal Institution, as well as using electrolysis to split compounds, identifying, naming and discovering sodium and potassium along the way, and then using a mercury cathode he isolated barium, boron, strontium, calcium and magnesium, and later he correctly identified chlorine as an element too. So electricity was as much used as a research tool, as a phenomenon to be researched for its own sake. It was opening up the world of matter like nothing else before it. And who was the early winner of the Volta Prize but Humphrey Davy himself? That's rather astonishing. At the height of the war, 
between the French and the British, when Nelson harried his ships and Wellington chased his marshals out of Spain and Portugal, Napoleon and his prize committee were open enough to the international virtues and verities of science to allow his award to go to an Englishman. Now, you may be thinking it's strange that I'm concentrating on electricity when at the same time that Alessandro Volta of the Vault was experimenting on producing electrical current, the Scottish inventor James Watt of the Watt was doing something more immediately transformative. He was developing the steam engine to a pitch that could make it at least three times more efficient at converting thermal energy to mechanical energy than ever before. Crankshafts gave his engines rotary power that could have them drive machinery and change the human world forever, work for manufacture, cleaning, milling, pressing and pumping in the past had been powered by human muscle, animal muscle, water or wind. By burning the calories in coal, carbonised plant matter, to boil water and generate steam, our species could radically and permanently alter the way we lived our lives. If you picture a, a straight line going left to right and suddenly shooting straight upwards like a rocket or a, a cliff wall, that's human history. We muddle along without systemic change in a straight line for thousands of years and then, at the turn of the 18th century, bang, everything altered. And it was the Industrial Revolution and steam power we have to thank, of course. All that is true, and I wouldn't want for a second to underplay it. Only these podcasts are more about leaps in communication and information technology than manufacturing processes and industry. After all, without the production and distribution of printed information on paper that began with Gutenberg, there could have been no James Watt. The leap that I'm interested in now is the spark that arced 80 years from Walter and Napoleon to another Scotsman. In 1815, as Abba put it, Napoleon did surrender, finally meeting his Waterloo. We will discover in a moment what happened to the Volta Prize, which is the real subject of this podcast, but first we should look at Humphrey Davy's lab assistant, a self-educated genius and like James Watt, and another couple of heroes we will meet in a moment, a Scotsman. His name was Michael Faraday, and while he is fully worth an entire series of podcasts on his own, I don't have the scientific chops that would qualify me as one to talk much more about him than in the most general terms. You remember how I said that since Thales of Miletus, the power of attraction at a distance observable in magnets was treated as being different from that power of attraction at a distance observable in amber and static electric effects? Well, Faraday showed that actually electricity and magnetism are one, the electromagnetic force. One could make or convert itself into the other. If Faraday moved a magnet through a loop of wire, an electric current flowed in that wire. In brief, this allowed the possibility of dynamos. Turn something, much as steam can turn a wheel, and you can generate electricity. Electromagnetic induction, electric motors and transformers all became, if the work, experimentation and development was done, theoretically possible. 
It raised the possibility that electricity could be more than a party trick, a splitter of compounds into their constituent elements, or a means of rust-proofing steel bathtubs. It could, through a motor, do work. The real mathematics to prove electromagnetism and transform scientific thinking was done by yet another Scotsman, James Clark Maxwell, who befriended Faraday and, as a mathematician, had the ability to take much of what Faraday had done and express it in equations that, so my physicist friends assure me, laid the groundwork not just for understanding electricity, but for modern physics generally. But in the meantime, all the real work in this age was being done by steam engines, and thanks to the Stevensons and others, that work included transport and therefore communication. The peace and prosperity dividend for Britain following Waterloo allowed an eruption of technological advances, perhaps the most important being the development of railways and of the electric telegraph, a combination of technologies that resulted in what has been called the creation of a nervous system for commerce. The speed with which Britain went from being a country with no railroads to being crisscrossed with a network of thousands of miles was bewildering. Such transformations in landscape, the world of work, population growth and movement had never been known. Goods and passengers could be conveyed at remarkable speeds using steam power. But Volta's work suggested to some that maybe thoughts, ideas, words and numbers could be sent around the country even faster using the light speed, as proved by Maxwell, of electricity. A remarkable Briton called Francis Ronalds is credited with designing, just the year after Waterloo, the first working telegraph at the age of 28. He had already built an electrograph to register atmospheric electrical conditions, as well as describing how the first electric clock would work. The Royal Navy High Command was shown the proof of concept of the telegraph, however, and dismissed it as a useless solution looking for a problem that didn't exist. In the words of Sir John Barrow, Secretary to the Admiralty, it was wholly unnecessary. Few people have ever been wronger about any innovation. Ronalds's vision was recognised in the end, however, and over 50 years later he was knighted for his achievements. He always had a really high doctrine of electricity and what it might be capable of. Here he is, speculating on its uses. Electricity may actually be employed for a more practically useful purpose than the gratification of the philosopher's inquisitive research. It may be compelled to travel many hundred miles beneath our feet and be productive of much public and private benefit. Why add to the torments of absence those dilatory tormentors, pens, ink, paper and post? Let us have electrical conversazioni offices, communicating with each other all over the kingdom. Give me material enough and I will electrify the world. Electrical conversation offices. What a perfect, poetic description. He wrote this at a time when Jane Austen, Beethoven and John Keats were writing with quills and sending messages by horseback couriers and mail coaches. Electrical conversation offices. 
Just a very few years later, Wilhelm Weber and the great mathematician Carl Friedrich Gauss built an electromagnetic telegraph that worked even more efficiently and reliably than Ronald's static electric prototype. All these pioneers had seen that the fact that electricity could travel at such speeds along wires suggested ways in which it could carry or at least convey information whether by pointing, activating needles, stop-starting, or by some other clever means, messages could flash across the world, arriving instantaneously at their destination. All it needed was what we would now call infrastructure, something that carried the wires around the country. The railways had shown that this could be done on a huge scale with track. Why couldn't electrical telegraph wires follow the railway tracks, carrying their pulses in cables strung from telegraph pole to telegraph pole? Bear in mind the wires were not there to carry power. There were yet no light bulbs, radios or electrical motors, no need for a power grid. The cables carried signalling in telegraph form. Edward Davy, no relation to Humphrey, so far as I can make out, in 1835 invented the electrical relay, an electrically operated switch. This was a crucial step. Electric pulses could be sent along wires and now they could be switched, just as points switch a railway track. You could divert and redirect the pulses. In 1840, an electric telegraphic communication system by Cook and Wheatstone was patented, using needles on a board which pointed to alphabetical characters, and this was rolled out on some of the major railway lines in Britain. But in Morristown, New Jersey, a Calvinist painter and dabbler in mechanics called Samuel Morse improved on the Europeans and came up with a vastly more useful system of electrical telegraphy using relays and a binary alphabetical code of his own invention. Critically, the user of the Morse system could record the signals that arrived at their end. The electrical pulses were embossed onto a moving paper tape, a technology developed by Morse's assistant, Alfred Vail. Vail, remember the name. The dots and dashes systematised into the famous Morse code. So at one end, you sent the signals by pressing a key that sent short or long pulses down the line, and the other end, those pulses were pressed into the paper tape, which one versed in the code could read. A fine technology, but useless in a landmass of America's size without a vast investment in infrastructure. Businessmen in the US had seen how the rail network had spread in Britain, with telegraph wires now being strung alongside, and they were bold and ambitious enough to think that they could do the same, establish a rail and telegraph network from coast to coast, from sea, as they like to put it, to shining sea. The first transcontinental telegraph line was built by a man called Ezra Cornell, who earned Morse's trust and partnered up with him. Cornell funded his company, which he called Western Union, with private and public money. It's indicative of the way the world was moving that he should have first started work as a constructor of mill races. 
Water had long been used to power turning shafts that ran mills for grinding corn, grist mills as they were called. Over the centuries, human ingenuity had tried to find ways to funnel, focus and concentrate the gravity-powered flow of a river or mill stream into a concentrated race that turned the mill wheels faster. Like attaching a jet nozzle to a garden hose or, later, stepping up electric current. Cornell, being of that generation that straddled the old and new technologies and having a good American entrepreneurial and philanthropic cast of mind, having made a killing from Western Union, gave much of the fortune he made to a foundation for the building of a great university to carry his name. We'll see more of this. And, incidentally, there is a tripartite connection between A. Grist Mills, B. The most famous inventor in history, and C. The man universally recognised as the father of information theory. We'll come to that another time. The effect of the Morse-Cornell-Western Union business was in every sense electric. Within a week of the completion of their line of telegraph wires across the continent, the fabled Pony Express courier service collapsed and went out of business. Within a week. Think about it for a moment. Once, the only way you could get a message across America was to write it out and give it to a company who either put it on a mail coach drawn by horses that slowly went from city to city across the country in stages, or it was placed in the saddlebags of an individual pony rider for greater speed. The rider would gallop as far as the pony could take him to a relay station where horses and riders were changed, and so on, from relay to relay. In 1841, the news of President Harrison's death took 110 days to reach Los Angeles. In 1861, the first telegram was sent from California to President Lincoln's White House at essentially instantaneous light speed, and nothing was ever the same. Five years later, Lincoln was dead. The states were at last politically and economically united, and a number of far-sighted, tough entrepreneurs saw that now the nation could be united physically too, and by more than just a telegraph line. The history of especially American information technology is the history of ambition, investment, expenditure and construction, as much as it is of innovation and invention. By 1869, a golden spike had been hammered into the ground at Promontory Summit, Utah, and a great transcontinental railroad now connected the Atlantic shore to the Pacific. The big four financiers come robber barons behind the project were ruthless, buccaneering and brutal and gave the word railroad a meaning that it retains today. They railroaded their railroad into being. The president of the company and leader of the Big Four was a man by the name of Leland Stanford. After piling up his gigantic fortune, he, like Cornell, left much of it to the founding of a great seat of learning, choosing Santa Clara Valley, just south of San Francisco, for the site of his Stanford University. We'll be coming back to the Santa Clara Valley and Stanford another time.
It's time again to return to the Volta Prize, which had been all but forgotten after Bonaparte's defeat and exile until it was renewed in the 1850s and its prize pot refreshed by the first emperor's nephew, Louis Napoleon, such that it became worth over a quarter of a million in today's values. About 30 years after that, in 1880, it was won by yet another Scot, a former teacher of the deaf, now resident in Boston, Massachusetts. His name was Alexander Graham Bell. The achievement for which the Volta Committee rewarded Bell with the prize was, of course, his invention of the telephone. Bell had got to the patent office to file his claim an hour or so before his rival, Elisha Gray. Many, many lawsuits would follow over the decades, but to all intents and purposes, Alexander Graham Bell won and is regarded as the phone's inventor. Cornell's successor as president of the Western Union Company, William Orton, the man who coined the phrase nervous system of commerce, had offered Bell $100,000 outright for the patent. Bell preferred not to sell, and just two years later, Orton confessed that had he got it for $25 million, it would have been a bigger bargain than the Louisiana and Alaska purchases combined. It is what Bell did with his prize that forms the kernel of this podcast, of this series of podcasts, really. Bell took the money and set it aside to be invested in research and development laboratories that were tasked to feed the fruits of their labour into his company, Bell Telephone. He decided that Bell Telephone should now be divided into two separate entities, running what we would now call the network, the infrastructure of exchanges and subscribers, was a new company to be called the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, better known as AT&T and manufacturing the hard physical equipment, the actual phones, cables, switchboards, relay switches and so forth, was Western Electric, who went on over the years to become Lucent, then Alcatel, before finally being absorbed into a Finnish lumber, logging, paper and rubber boot company called Nokia. At Bell Labs, scientists, engineers and inventors were put on the payroll to create ideas and devices which could be patented and grow the parent corporation more. The nervous system of commerce was now railways, telegraph and telephone. Alexander Graham Bell, though not a vainglorious man, was proud of his invention and confident of its use. Not long after he made the First famous call to his assistant, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. He went so far as to make this extravagant, prophetic claim. It is my firm belief, he said, that one day there will be a telephone in every town in America. That may remind you of the remark alleged to have been made by Thomas Watson of IBM in 1958. I think there is a world market for about five computers. Not even the inventors and entrepreneurs themselves always quite foresee the full potential of their technologies. We'll leave Bell and the first Bell Lab there to brew like tea in a pot and come back to it later. Less than a decade after the 1880 Volta Prize was awarded to Bell, we look at another European now, this time half Italian, like Volta, and half Scottish, like Alexander Graham Bell. 
he too built a company out of his innovation. Bell called the telephone harmonic telegraphy. Marconi called his invention wireless telegraphy. The world would, rather lazily, call it radio. By 1901, he too would be trying his device out as an instrument of transcontinental communication, personally initiating a call from Ireland to Newfoundland. A few years after that, his invention summoned HMS Carpathia to rescue survivors of the Titanic sinking. Dr Crippen, who had murdered his wife, escaped capture in London and after boarding a transatlantic liner and thinking himself blissfully free, was overtaken by a telegraph message and arrested on arrival in Canada. The nervous system of commerce was now railroad, telegraph, telephone and radio. It was as if the terms and conditions for 20th century living had been laid out. So if I can sum up, we have, as I warned you, zipped round, about, up, down, over and through 19th century history in a seemingly haphazard manner, sparking from one surface to another like an electrophorus or Van de Graaff generator. But in outlining the stories of Volta, Watt, Davy, Faraday, Maxwell, Morse, Cornell, Stanford, Bell, Marconi and the others, I hope a, a semi-coherent picture emerges. The Industrial Revolution and the discoveries of science, most particularly the work of Faraday and Maxwell on electromagnetism, allowed the transformation of our society into one where infrastructure could create networks that communicated information at light speed. It all happened because of the vigorous manner in which Volta's work was taken up by a variety of remarkable engineers, inventors, scientists, thinkers, chancers, entrepreneurs and visionaries. But the spark that Napoleon sent across the century from Paris to New York with the prize fund that seeded the Bell Labs energised the next century, the 20th, in ways that the emperor could never have guessed at. Until next time, then. Oh, oh, no, I asked a question at the top of the hour. Did anyone win a Nobel Prize and an Oscar? Can you think of such a person? Some of you might have thought that one of them was Al Gore, whose film An Inconvenient Truth won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2007 and who was personally awarded the Nobel Peace Prize that same year. But actually, Gore didn't win the Oscar, despite making the acceptance speech at the ceremony. The Oscar went to the director, Davis Guggenheim. This rather ruins the common internet claim that Al Gore won the elusive triple of Oscar Grammy, which he did win for the audiobook, and Nobel Prize. No, the only person to win an Oscar and a Nobel Prize was George Bernard Shaw, the playwright. He adapted his own play, Pygmalion, for the screen and won an Oscar for that in 1938, having won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1925. He is the one. Well, that's what I always used to say. Then, of course, in 2016, a second name was added to that distinguished roster of one, Bob Dylan, who was awarded an Oscar in 2000 for the song Things Have Changed, which he wrote for the movie Wonder Boys, and a Nobel Prize for Literature in October 2016. Just those two, Bernard Shaw and Bob Dylan. No one else has done it. But they never beat off Ian McKellen and Rupert Everett or one British Pipe Smoker of the Year, 
So, yaboo to them. Next time, how evacuating the tube led to a whole new science. If you have been, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. Also thanks to the Audio Network. For further information on the podcast series, visit stephenfry.com forward slash Great Leap Years. Great Leap Years is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. This is a Sam Fry Limited production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.